I grew up in a time when radio introduced me to a lot of music. In fact, in the beginning, I think radio was the reason I was introduced to so many different bands that I've come to love. And in growing up in Toronto, that meant listening to Chum Radio and Q107. And on the other side of that radio was your voice, Mr. Donnelly, um, announcing the songs and interviewing the musicians. So it's a real thrill for me to sit down and talk to you about music and radio. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. So tell me how I get the impression, for me, radio introduced me to music. I get the feeling that for you, music introduced you to radio. You're very perceptive, very perceptive, because when my career began, prior to ever stepping into a radio station, I managed a little band out in Curtis, Ontario, just east of Oshawa, Linda and the Chancellors, and I would get them booked out of Caesarea and Port Perry. I, I got them into the, the get, as it was called, at OCVI Collegiate, was where uh, Little Caesar and the Consuls and John Lee and the Checkmates and all these bands would appear. So I was starting to feel good about myself, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I did love radio from the time I was four. My father had a, in fact, I have it in the other room. So I have a Westinghouse table radio, and there was a little yellow light, and I would lay in bed, and I'd, I'd had it over my head, and I would listen to it, and... Uh, because uh, being in my 60s, I was able to catch the tail end of uh, radio that told stories. So I could listen to The Lone Ranger and listen to shows like that. And now everybody uses the term theater of the mind. And uh, it was theater of the mind because I was doing all the scenes in my head. Uh, Bob Dylan once said that uh, MTV destroyed that imagination, you know, because you had to accept what you saw in the scene. Right. Well, true. So... You know, it started that way, but then I started listening to music radio. And when you're a boy, uh, in my house, your father ruled the dial uh, once it was downstairs. And so CKEY was our radio station, and I watched them, listen to them, go rock, top 40. Uh, but once I got control of the radio, um, I stayed there as well, but I would also go over to 1050 Chum, and WKBW in Buffalo. I loved those radio stations, and each of them spoke to me very differently, although they played pretty much the same music. The disc jockeys were unique, um, knowledgeable, and I was totally in love. And one day, I heard all this noise about a quarter of a mile up the road, because I lived in the country, and they were opening a new uh, garage. <laughs> and CKLB and Oshawa were there with their trailer and they were broadcasting live and throwing 45s, you know. And I got a copy of uh, Picture of You by Joe Brown and the Brothers. And I just stood there and I was, I, w I was just blown away. And I thought, I think I'd like to do this, which in a way was good because the other alternative was I, I was raised a pretty good Catholic and I was heading to uh, the priesthood at one point or at least I thought I was, until I discovered women in flunk Latin. <laughs> <laughs> tell, me, tell me what a 45 meant to you back then. 45 was everything. Um, when I went into the uh, Canadian uh, Broadcast Hall of Fame two years ago and got the Alan Waters Award, I bring that not to just 
push what I won, but who I invited to my table. I invited Bill Wilson to come to my table. Bill Wilson was the son of the owner, and now he's the owner, of Wilson and Lee Music on Simcoe Street North. And he knew me so well, because my mother would give me uh, a dollar a week allowance, and I'd get on the bus in Curtis, and I'd come in, walk up, and, oh, hey, Johnny, how you doing? Good. And I would wander around the store. I said, okay, what's it going to be today? And I, I would choose my 45, and I would bring it home. I still remember the first two 45s I bought. And I brought them home, and I had a little Seabreeze record player, put it in my room, locked the door, and then put it on, and then I was gone. I was just so happy and it made me feel so good. And albums then were about three ninety eight. dollars uh, Real big albums, four ninety eight. And I hadn't gone to albums yet, but I was buying my 45s, and I, I, I remember going in one day, and he said, John, you got to check this out. And it's called She Loves You, you know, by this group, The Beatles. In fact, turn around, take a look. And w- they racked their albums, right? There'd be the best of Brenda Lee, the best of Fabian, the best of Frankie Avalon. But all of a sudden, I turn around. The whole wall is racked with Beatlemania. So it's the black and white cover. At this point, had they been on Ed Sullivan yet or not? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Okay, here we go. I don't think they had been on Ed Sullivan yet because this would be 63 because Paul White, man from Capitol Records Canada, who kind of discovered the Beatles for us, released three singles because, I mean, it's history now. The U.S. didn't care for the Beatles when they came out. Uh, Nothing was done. They were on three or four different labels in the States. Uh, VJ was one of them, and uh, they were on. In fact, there's a collector's item where you can get the best, sort of like the Beatles meet the Four Seasons, you know, stuff like that. But um, so Paul was releasing these singles. I didn't know who he was at the time. And uh, so I bought the album, brought it home, Dropped the needle, and I hear Lennon screaming, it won't be long, yeah, 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 oh, God. And I went through it. I didn't know, you know, it'd be easy to fib now, but some of these Motown songs, like Money and uh, Please Mr. Postman, and You've Really Got a Hold on Me, I didn't know the, the Motown versions. So John Lennon, for me, singing You've Really Got a Hold on Me became my, you know, definitive version although I did hear the others, and it, it helped me, like the Rolling Stones, it helped me discover American music. You know, I'd see, who's this C. Berry guy doing, writing Rollover Beethoven? Uh, again, it's an age thing. I probably was only a couple years away from I would have known it. But so I started collecting the 45 and going out, and I still have a big package in the other room of these, of the centers, you know, the, the yellow ones. And uh, which I got, I picked up at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. So, can we go back to the first two singles you bought? Mm-hmm. I don't think you mentioned who they were. No, I didn't. The first single I bought, even though they were known as a, for their first big giant hit record, in fact, the first two were the Diamonds from Canada originally. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And they did Little Darling, they did The Stroll, and then they did one. I always love to go with She Say Ah Oom Dooby and I love this She Say. I said, this is great on Mercury. Labels were important. Who arranged it was important. So I bought it. And the second record I bought and fell in love with them and got to MC a show with them a few years later, many years later, was uh, Lloyd Price. 
1959, I guess, and it was Personality by Lloyd Price, which was his follow-up to Stagger Lee. And after that, it gets cloudy. I don't remember the order, but I do remember I asked, I begged my mother for an increase in allowance because the 45s were 66 cents each. And then they made them a dollar, but there was tax. So it'd be a dollar one. Plus I needed a dime each way to get back on the bus. So she upped me to about a buck 30 to buck 40. Sorry, how did you know what single or 45 to buy? Like how was that determined? Was that from the radio? Was that was there charts or how did that, how did you make that decision? There, there were charts, but I didn't really follow them during that period. Uh, what, what, what made the purchase happen for me was what I heard through my years. It was really that simple. I'd hear something and I went, oh, I've got to have this. And my father, after a while, went, you know, John, you're really accumulating a lot of these things. And what are you going to do? Of course, today, um, I have endless amounts of vinyl, endless amounts of CDs. I still can't stop collecting. Um, and I've got, they're all hidden away, but I've got tons and tons of my original 45s. I kept them all. Uh, but it was, it was something about the sound. Uh, to use that Dick Clark thing, you know, it's it's got a great beat. I, I I can dance to it, you know. But that wasn't a thing, and I, and I liked all kinds, because one has you know forgets that. Let's use Chum for an example, ten fifty Chum. You'd have a chart, and on that chart, you could have everything from itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini, which I didn't buy, to Johnny Horton and the Battle of New Orleans. Did I know that was a Stone Country record? Not really, but he crossed over into top 40. I bought that. I loved the battle. And I'd sit there and I, would, I knew every lyric. And then you would have people like uh, Frank Sinatra. You know, we're going up a couple of years, but Strangers in the Night and That's Life, which I just thought were great. And what my friends laughed at with me uh, was I became a fan. Oh God, my 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 uh, my tastes were so all over the place. I I bought "Sail Along Silvery Moon" by Billy Vaughn. Then found out later through writing the liner notes that he's the guy who helped produce and arrange all of Pat Boone's records. And I like Pat Boone. I'm not embarrassed to say that. I like "Don't Forbid Me." I like "Love Letters in the Sand." And Pat Boone was in the top four all-time single-selling artists of that time. And, of course, he'll never go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he's looked upon as a crooner. Right. As I just dive all over the place here. But... Uh, Let me ask you this. Yeah. So, going forward a few years, and you referred to this before, where you became a manager of a band. The manager of the band actually came first. Okay, so... Before radio. Right. Yes. But going forward from your collecting days... Yes. What did you think... What did you hope to accomplish by being a manager? Like, did you have thoughts that this would be the next Beatles? Did you did you think this no. would be a good? Was it a career move, or was it just something you did? Well, I was still in high school, and and all as I knew, it, it got me into dances for free, and they did R and B, and I was an R and B fanatic, so I got to go to all the rehearsals, and I would listen to live rock and roll, live music. I mean. It's so, uh, you know, today I think about it and I go, yeah, okay, it's a band. But then I'd never seen a band live. And Billy Wade, who went on to be the drummer for Moxie, Billy was the drummer, 
and we had Billy Gogan on guitar, who was known as Billy the Dancer. Billy the Dancer was, he, he, he followed in the foots of Robbie Robertson and Freddie Keeler. He was, he just blew me away. So what inspired me to manage this group was we, we couldn't afford, uh, we couldn't afford amps. We couldn't afford uh, speakers, things like that. But I knew a guy by the name of George Gudgeon, and he worked at the local radio station, and he had a rental business for bands. So that got me an introduction, met him, told him how I'd always dreamed of being on radio. He says, well, I'll tell you what, uh, Wednesday or Thursday night, I'm doing a remote broadcast from the A&W. Of course, McDonald's wasn't, wasn't quite around yet came shortly after why don't you come up and sit in and, and this thing was like a you know like a little motor home and it's all windows so I told my friends and he said I want you to read oh I didn't tell you the excitement of the show he 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 had a hunting and fishing show it was 30 minutes a week you come up and you read the best places to go for hunting and fishing I went, all right so I tell my friends, I get up there, I'm sitting in the trailer, suddenly the horns are honking, hey, Donnie, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, and they're going, screaming, and so anyway, I, I read my 20 seconds, or 30 seconds, whatever it was, and that was it. Sorry, and when you said you wanted to do radio, did it matter what it was? It was just You mean format-wise? Yeah, I mean, it was just about being on radio? Did you have any idea what being on radio meant or did you have an idea of well you've just opened up a whole uh, can of beans here uh, can of worms whatever <laughs> uh, into what I would tell students when I used to and I still do uh, do schools universities but I say to them now and this will immediately get back to what you asked um, how many will only work a particular format or you're not doing it I got a lot of hands up. No, I'm not doing that, man. If I can't do a CFNY format, then I don't want to be in the radio. Now, to answer your question, I just wanted to be behind a microphone. So it didn't matter that you were reading where to hunt in Canada or to announce Top 40 singles. The Top 40 singles did come a little later, but in between that one show and then getting to know Ron Morey, one of the greatest voices in Canada... I would operate his all-night show for him, and uh, which is what got me my job at Oshawa at CKLB. But when I got the job, the all-night show's format was uh, Rosemary Clooney, Madhavani, Patty Page, all my father's acts. I did not care. I wanted to talk into this thing. So you didn't have any say in what was being played at that point? Yes, I did, 100%. Oh. Well. But it had to be middle of the road. Right, okay. See, one has to, and I don't know if... We want to get into it here, but formats in those days at stations outside of Toronto would be six in the morning till five in the afternoon. Uh, it would be middle of the road. It would be Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, bleep it like that. Five o'clock news would end. Suddenly, it's time for Solitary Man by Neil Diamond, or it's time for Give Me Some Lovin' by the Spencer Davis Group. And you had your one rock jog. Um, I inherited that show after I got off the all-night show because the way you moved up in those days was someone had to quit. So your next jump from all-nights was to work evenings, but gave you the rock show. 
And it was an interesting way of doing an evening. Um, I played top 40 rock and roll from 5 until 9 o'clock. Then right in the middle of your show, it was The World Tomorrow with Garner Ted Armstrong. 30 minutes of religion after the 9 o'clock news. We call it now uh, cash cow for the radio station. Religious programming. Buying religious programming that runs on some of these stations on Sunday morning. Believe me, the station are making money. And then after that show, you'd go back to your top 40 till 11. Well, now we're getting into... 1966, the Stax Volt sound is going really big. Motown was fine, still almost music for a bigger white audience. And, but they had all these incredible labels. And I went to my program director and I said, I have an idea. After the world tomorrow and the news and everything else, I have 80 minutes left. And there are still people from Osho who remember this. And I called the show 80 of Soul. They gave me a budget, and I would drive to Record World on Avenue Road, where uh, Donnie Walsh from the uh, Downchild Blues Band was working, racking. Uh, but the big one was to drive to Buffalo. I mean, Buffalo was Mecca. Buffalo had the most incredible records, and I would get them and I'd bring them back. And I was getting phone calls from, especially the east end of Toronto, because they could pick it up. They were going nuts. And they just love this stuff, and I'm enjoying it, having a great time. Meanwhile, here in Toronto, CKFH, owned by Foster Hewitt. That's what the FH stood for, down on Grenville. It had an all-night rhythm and blues show. And it was brokered, meaning that this very industrious young man who later became co-president of Attic Records, Tom Williams, he brokered it, hired his own announcer, paid him, and sold spots. Well, he wanted to make a change. Uh, so uh, one of the two heads of RPM magazine called him up one day and said I know a guy in Oshawa is doing exactly the same thing he's got to be kidding so he got in touch with me and he said you know would you send me an audition tape sure and I was so frightened after the phone call I never sent him one <laughs> and uh, a few weeks later I had a great summer job extra money I was down at the CNE. And I was in the uh, media building, and I go, over at the uh, Better Living Center right now is, uh, only then it was like, over at the Better Living Center. <laughs> and I was doing that. He finds out that I'm there. He calls the media building. John, it's Tom Williams. Where's, where's your audition tape? Chicken Johnny again. You know, I sent it. I don't know where. Yeah. When are you on the air today? I said, oh, not till 5 o'clock. What time do you quit there? I'm done at noon. Good. Come down to Young and Grenville to uh, FH. Do the audition live. Wow. So when you say live, does that mean live, not live. on air? No, not on air, but live to tape. Right. And a very, very important part I left out was when I was doing the rock show in Oshawa, and this is what made it easier, I finally called my absolute hero of heroes, Big G Walters, who used to be at CKEY when I was a kid. Now he was at FH. I asked him if I could come and sit in with him. And he liked me. I have no idea why. I was so square. So square that I had a pompadour, you know, and I glasses like these, my buddy Holly glasses. And Glenn was like, yeah. You know, he was like that all the time. You ever done a joint, man? Uh, I've been in a few joints. <laughs> Isn't he funny? <laughs> and, uh, well, that was an interesting adventure, but he liked me. 
And he had Tom Williams' ear. He said, Tom, you got to audition this kid. I didn't know that was going on. So about 150 people tried out for the job, and I got the job. And that got me into Toronto radio, playing rhythm and blues all night long. And if I picked two or three spots in my, uh, in my career. That was maybe one of the happiest times, working from 1 in the morning till 6 in the morning. And then Don Daynard would follow me after that. How did you know who was listening at that point? Audience uh, on the phones were very vocal. Okay. Very, very vocal. No, uh, I was on the air three times when we had major uh, assassinations and one death. The first one, I was supposed to do a show with Otis Redding at Massey Hall in December of 67. I'd worked with Sam and Dave. I'd worked with Wilson Pickett. I'd worked with King Curtis. I'd worked with all of these people. And I was so excited about this. Well, then, he, of course, he got killed in the plane crash. I'm on the air. Girls are calling, sobbing, sobbing. And I'm playing Otis. And the other two times were both in 68, when Robert Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King. Again, the Martin Luther King got a lot more phone response from a lot of, uh, as we call them then, black kids. You know, today they say, oh, gee, you know, John, you've got this African-American, African-Canadian. I said, James Brown gave me permission after working with him to say the word black. I'm black. I'm proud. So I use the word black. And anyway, um, I did that all-night show for almost a year, and then uh, I was asked to come to daytime and actually work for FH proper. Now I was doing Top 40 again. Let me ask you this. When you when you first got that gig and became a, a, a disc jockey, you selected the music, went to Record World, or you went to Buffalo to buy the thing. I know it's all about ratings and, and making sure that you had good numbers, but in your mind as a disc jockey, what was, what was it about for you to be playing those records? It was everything. And it may have been about ratings, but when you're not in the Toronto market, I never heard that word ever mentioned. I never heard the word ratings ever mentioned in the couple of years I was in Oshawa. I, and I got, you know, when I was doing Top 40 in the evening and then 80 of Soul, I got to choose whatever I wanted to play. Now, granted, in the Top 40 area, you had, you had a box and it sat there and all these 45s were in it. So, but I used to be able to go through it and play it and so on. But the, the Soul show was uh, totally me. I could play anything I wanted. I got to FH. I could play anything I wanted. The all-night show was never rated. So, really, I was spoiled for my first three or four years in radio because I could just do whatever I wanted. Until I went daytime at FH, and they brought in a hard-nosed program director from the States who didn't like me very much. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, things started to go a little sour there for a while. And I found myself, Keith Hampshire, who became a recording artist. Keith, Keith was on Radio Caroline, and he came to FH. And he and I, we both got fired the same day by this guy, Gary Pallant, who's no longer with us. And uh, I left the market for six months and ended up getting hired by Doug Riley, the infamous <clears throat> keyboard player. They had opened up Toronto Sound Studios on Overly Boulevard. And he put me in charge of starting Dr. Music Publishing. Which wow. I, didn't, I didn't have a clue of. So I did that for six months. And then Barry Nesbitt, the PD, said, hey, we just fired the guy who fired you. Uh, we'd love you to come back. So let me ask you this. Because yes. I, think, I think in terms of 
sports managers and coaches are hired to be fired. It's true. And I get the feeling that this jockey is the same way. Am I? Oh, yeah. Like, and that's part of the business. It's very rare that somebody would spend 25 years or whatever in one station, whatever. Like, was that Roger just Ashby. That? Yeah. But was that understood by you that when you decided to take on this job that it was only for a finite number of years and then you would move on and that's just a pattern that... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was aware that it could happen. And when it did happen in 69, the fall of 69, I was really devastated. And uh, I went off to another little radio station for a while outside of the market. And then one day my mother, because I had to move back with my parents my mother said one day, you got a call from Barry Nesbitt. And I got right on the phone. And I was in the car in no time, found myself in another little apartment, and I was back on the radio again. But, yeah, it's not, as uh, Steve Couch from CFRB said to me, it's not if you get fired, it's when you get fired. But, Mako, I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but it took me a lot of years to be able to feel confident enough to do that. I was very lucky. After that incident, I never lost a job till uh, 1990. So I had all this run, and I only applied for two jobs in my life. That's it. All the others were phoning me and asking me. And Ron Morey had taught me a lesson in the early days. John, get at least $5,000 more and take the job. Don't be afraid to move. So I wasn't afraid to move. And I did a number of jobs. I mean, I left the province twice. I went to, to Montreal, and I went to Vancouver. Until 1977, I came back to put on Q107. But anyway, in between, I was doing my show Saturday afternoon on, on CKFH. The phone rang. guy in the newsroom said, call for you. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to take the call. He said, you might want to take this call. It's Bob Lane from Chum FM, who was the program director and former Top 40 jock. He said, would you come and talk to us? Now, after my falling in love with music, Chum FM was, I listened all the time. I would call Reiner Schwartz at night, and Reiner would dedicate songs to me. And, you know, I mean, I was a groupie of that radio station. So I went over there, and I, I was making $14,000 a year at FH, which was good. And I was driving one of the first six 240Z Datsuns. My buddies were driving MGBs. I felt pretty good about myself. <laughs> So when I wanted to meet Bob, uh, we had uh, quite a conversation. He talked a lot, and he kept telling me all the things I could do, like play whatever you want, play a whole side of an album, interview who you want. He kept going like that. And I went, wow, I found eternal freedom. And I said, uh, Mr. Lane, he goes, no, call me Bob. Bob, what can I do? He didn't miss a beat. Uh, don't say fuck on the radio. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. So what year that, was this? That's it. This is uh, 1971. Okay. And that was it. That was the, the only rule. And, of course, I'm sitting there going, okay, here we go. It's chum, right? How much money would you would you like? And I said, I'm making 14. Uh, 18,000. He started laughing. He said, don't you realize the numbers we don't have? By the way, you're sitting in the wrong side of the building for that kind of money. This is chum FM. Not Chum AM. How was, how's 9600 sound? Ooh. So I'll take it. 
wanted it so, so bad. I'd so never... you, can you just paint the difference between AM and FM radio in the 70s at this point? At, at this point, there, there was nothing like Chum FM. People forget now that they've got so many choices. Let's forget about the iPods and, and all the other pieces of media and the CFNYs and the Q107s and blah, 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 blah. There was only Chum FM playing progressive, hippy-dippy, underground rock. And it wasn't that popular yet because people were very top 40 oriented. And then can you give me an example of what record you would have wanted to play at that point? As soon as the job was offered, what album you thought would be suitable for this that maybe you would you had never been able to play before? Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands by Bob Dylan. What was it 18 minutes, 16 seconds, <laughs> you know? We, we, we had these we had these records because you made me think of something. We had these records where if you're working, say, on a Saturday afternoon and nobody around and you've eaten some bad food, you know, uh, you could play Amagama by Pink right. Floyd. Like, we had all these tracks that were like, you know, 15 to 18 minutes. But Bob Dylan was the first thing I thought of. And, of course, uh, I was in love with and still remain uh, the biggest the band fan. So I got to play the band. I got to play Dylan. My show was known. It got to be known, and it hurt me a little bit. Um, I I was really into acoustic music. I was into softer stuff. Not schmaltzy stuff, just a little bit softer. Uh, Jackson Brown and all those people. Where some of the other guys would be playing a lot of Rush and later, you know, other heavy metal bands and so on. But I like Journey and so on. But I could play anything I wanted, you know. We went over to the island. We broadcasted live from there. And um, guests would be coming in all the time. I was hired to do 10 at night till 2 in the morning because Reiner Schwartz had left on the Friday. I got hired on the Saturday. Reiner came back on the Monday because he had quit over something. And uh, so I'm ready to come back. Bob said, I'm sorry. I've hired somebody. The staff were not real friendly to me for the first couple of weeks. They loved Reiner with a passion. And I did too, but I didn't work with them. But after I was there for a little while, and then Bob spoke to them saying, look, if it wasn't him, it was going to be somebody else. And uh, for them, I think it was a bit of a kick in the teeth because Bob Lane, they were very leery about him anyway because he was a top 40 jock from Chum AM. Suddenly he's their boss, right? So that was a little weird. Then the first guy he hires is me top 40 jock from CKFH you went oh where are we going but then they realized I really knew what I was talking about and I remember after the first night my phone rang about 10 to 1 before Pritchard came on David Pritchard genius and it was Bob I said man this has been an incredible four hours I went, oh thank you God <laughs> thank you and, and, and I just loved it and it was like that from 71 to 74 did you know though like that first night did you know that you were programming the right thing and that the show was going well I knew I was programming the right thing for me I had no idea how it would go over with the powers that be but Bob loved it and therefore you know he says uh, I guess you can come back tomorrow night you know so I came back and uh, and kept it up till 74 and then what you and I discussed a minute ago regarding was there any competition for Chum FM. First competition, and it came heavy, was from Buffalo. It was Magic FM. Magic were playing a lot of the same tracks, but 
They almost had a top 40 kind of style with the jocks. It was tight, tight, tight. Everything we did, we, we hated. But then Bob Lane got hired to go to Winnipeg and be a general manager. And uh, my old friend and program director, Duff Roman, came in. And Duff was instructed, look, we've got to take on this magic. So we really, really tightened up, really tightened up. And at that same point, I, I, I got a job offer from Montreal for uh, CGFM, FM 96, which is standard broadcasting, CJD's FM. They're doing exactly what the old Chum FM is doing. Hmm. I'm going, yeah. So I started following the format. You know, we went to Montreal. I got to talk to Bob Seeger. I got to talk to all of these great artists, uh, French-Canadian artists, English artists. We had a wonderful time there. And then politically, René Levesque came in. Things were a little strange if you were an Anglo. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend Don Schaefer at Chum FM said, called me up, and he said, I just got a job with Roy Hennessy at CKLG FM in Vancouver. Here we go again, third radio station in a row, playing what Chum FM did before. So I sent him a tape, including my interview with John Lennon at the time that I had done in 73 for Walls and Bridges. And he hired me right away. So Don and I got a caravan going. You know, I, he had a kid. I had two kids. He had six dogs, two wives, and uh, out we went. So it didn't matter where you were as long as you could play your music. That's right. It was the most important thing to me. And I was young, you know. I mean, I was, I didn't care. Uh, the only thing I feel bad about was working for Roy Hennessy was incredible. He's a great man. We're still friends today, but... I was there seven months when Gary Slate came in to see me. Oh, Gary Slate was working out there as a salesman, you know, selling airtime. And he says, you know, Dad wants to talk to you, and Dave Charles wants to talk to you. That We're putting a brand-new radio station on in Toronto. It's called Q107, and we really want you there to take on Chum FM. We negotiated. It's pretty quick when I went in to resign to Roy, and that was really hard. But back in the, back in the car we got. Can I ask you what you thought you had that people wanted like what was it what made you so I was told what I had which was very complimentary Bob Lane said to me one night he said you know I don't think I've heard anybody that when you speak to me and I said and I feel you're speaking to me out of the box the radio that you're really speaking to me I never used the word folks I never talked to people as a group and I got the reputation of being uh, a one-on-one communicator. And that truly worked for me. And my interviewing talent, that was scary because I had never really done too many interviews before. But I was thrust into doing interview after interview late at night. And I would have the musicians come in and play live. So the art of conversation, the art of uh, working with these musicians, plus... I, and I don't know why I remember this. At Chum FM, a guy called me one night, and he said, uh, John, um, I just wanted to call you quick. I've been listening for about three or four hours, and I'm cramming for finals at U of T tomorrow. And I'm terrified. He said, I can't tell you how you make me feel so good. And I said, and your knowledge, and God, this sounds terrible, so I'm bragging, but hey, I love your knowledge, I love this and that. And, that. and I went, Thank you. So obviously it meant something to me because all these years later, it stayed with me. And so that was my gift is I, I could interview pretty well and I could communicate well. Did you know that while you were doing it? Like, no. did you? 
<laughs> Not until it was pointed out, and then it was pointed out by other people outside of the radio station, especially the interviewing part. And that helped me stick around radio for a number of years. Can I ask you, <clears throat> I've asked a lot of musicians about the first time they heard themselves on the radio, their music, and what a thrill it was. As a DJ, you probably didn't get a chance to listen to yourself on the radio. But um, taking that other point of view, was there ever a record that you thought would be a hit that became a hit or vice versa that you, you were convinced it would be a big hit that never became a hit? Well, taking on the first part, um, when I was still doing Top 40, um, I had a lot of, I always had a lot of friends in the record companies and they'd send me an album and it became a little game at first. So, so John, if you were picking the single from this album, what would it be? And I'd say, it's this one. It's got to be this one. Not that they did the choice because of me, but they listened to me and uh, it would get chosen. Maybe I'd not be the first one, might be the second single. Then they'd start asking me over and over again. And I was starting to pick singles. I could I could hear what I could hear the hooks. Like, you know, it's like two and a half, two minutes and forty-three seconds, and the hooks were in the right place, and it just sounded great. So I took a shot, you know, and, and so yeah, I but uh, records that didn't become a hit that I thought would become a hit, um, I'd have to think about that one for a while. I'm sure there were. I'm I'm sure there were. And things that I just loved um, that probably didn't make it. But uh, I think I probably vacuumed those for a month. <laughs> so by this time in your career, you're quite aware of ratings and what that means. Oh, yeah. So as you're programming your shows, are you very conscious of ratings? And how, where does the, the thought of ratings come into what you do on a daily basis? As a... I hate to disappoint you on that question. I didn't care at all. <laughs> okay. Um, until, uh, after Reiner Schwartz left, this is when I learned something about radio I've never forgotten. How can I replace Reiner Schwartz? Well, I can't replace him. I just got to be me. First book came out, first rating book, and I had doubled the numbers. Well, it was really nice. And that's when I sat down with Bob Lane and he said, John, the radio station is always bigger than the individual. You've, man you've managed to keep those two flowing, and so congratulations, you've done it. But then I would do one book after another, and one book came in, it was horrible. It was like I'd really fallen. And I always wore my feelings on my, on my arms, you know, my shoulder, whatever. Yeah. He saw me walking down the hall after the ratings came out, and I, hi, Bob, you know, what's wrong? Oh, the ratings, you know, the... John, come here and shut the door. He said, you know, you're really arrogant, aren't you? I went, pardon? You think that the decline in your ratings is all your fault. Hmm. No other program director has ever said this before or after. He said, John, maybe part of it's my fault. Maybe some of the changes I've made to the radio station have made it go down. Stop worrying about whether you're going up or down just to answer me this do you think you're as good as or do you think you're, you're you're doing the same sort of thing that you did in the last book when it really went up i went yes fine end of story don't worry about it and you know it's uh, but then as the years went by 
then it got really ratings conscious, you know, and uh, I was pretty nervous for each book to come out because uh, that meant you were going to either work or you weren't going to work. But did you get a sense? Like, would you know that point when, when your ratings went down? Did you have any sense that things had changed? You'd done things differently or? I really felt I hadn't done anything differently, so I couldn't figure out why they went down. And as you stay in radio long enough, you realize there's a thousand things that can you know, make, make radio stations go down. And there's lots of things, you know, like when 680 just all of a sudden went off the charts was during 9-11. I mean, it was all news. People wanted to know exactly what was going on, so they really knew why they scored. Right. Uh, CHFI the last few years, everybody laughed at them for playing Christmas music starting in November. Biggest book they have in a year is when they play all that Christmas music. So, you know, there there's... Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason. People take a shot at it, and uh, it works, or it doesn't. And as one program director once said to me, and this goes back into our conversation, he said, before they fire me, John, I'll take a few of you down first. He said it right to me. So I went, oh, okay. That along with when I was at Chum FM, and we bought the house you're sitting in now, excuse me, the house you're sitting in now, uh, which is the only house I've ever owned. I remember telling my program director at the time, he said, well, aren't you feeling confident, huh? <laughs> aren't you feeling special? You know, I came home, I said to my wife, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Because we all talked in the background in those days that once the PD and management knew that you'd bought a house, made a major investment, that they had you. Hmm. They had you by the cojones then because you weren't going to rock the boat <laughs> because you had a mortgage to pay. You know? <laughs> Tell me, after all these years, do you love radio still the same way? I still love it. I have thoughts, and I have had these thoughts for a few years, especially on FM radio. They're not talking to me. They're not speaking to me. They're not musically doing what I want. And therefore... Um, say the three major FMs in this city, all great radio stations, by the way, and who am I to question CHFI or Chum FM or, or Virgin? I mean, look how successful they are. So obviously, you know, there are uh, a lot of people who enjoy that. I don't. So I've gone to the Internet. Right. I'm listening to WFUV in New York, which I just love out of Fordham University. They're a membership-driven station. They remind me somewhat of the early days of Chum FM, but they're a lot more focused, and obviously they're formatted, and you can be sitting there listening in the afternoon, and suddenly Paul Simon walks into the studio. Being in New York has got to be incredible, because you know, I remember there was a time years ago I, I wanted to work at WNEW FM so bad. I just thought that would be the epitome. But anyway, I listen to FUV. I listen to CIUT, which I enjoy here a lot. I'm a big jazz and blues fan. I love it a lot. Uh, you can't get that. So I listened to WWOZ in New Orleans, and I was listening to K-Pig in California. They're just nuts. They, they made us sound at Chum FM. Like, oh, God. But then they stopped. They said, you know, we can't stream anymore unless you pay us, um, which I didn't do. However, just three weeks ago, I gave my first big pledge to WFUV in New York because I, I wrote the engineer at 6.30 in the morning saying, I can't get you on my internet radio. Wrote back in 10 minutes. 6.40 in the morning, this guy writes me back, and he says, we've been doing some work, da-da-da-da. Please write me back in a few minutes. Can you get it on your, your Mac upstairs? Can you get it on your iPad? 
And when I found out I could, he said, yeah, we're having trouble with internet radios and we're still having trouble. And I thought, you know what? That guy at 6.40 in the morning took the time to get in touch with me. It reminded me of the old days. And I immediately uh, went to their forum and uh, I made sure I donated enough so I could get a t-shirt. <laughs> That's all I care about is a t-shirt. But I want to emphasize, I, I am not knocking what's going on here in this city or other cities. But, you know, when I, when I travel and I can hear Ryan Seacrest in any market, you know, I, just after a while, I just find that they're too close. They'll all tell you and their management will tell you that they're definitely different. But probably it's my fault. I don't give them enough chance to tell me they're different. What is perfect radio to you? Perfect radio. I don't think there is. Perfect radio? They took this part out of my interview in FYI. God bless you, David Farrell. But he took the line out. I think he was protecting me. Because my last line they cut out was, I build a great radio station every day with iTunes. I make playlists that I sit there and I go, oh, this is just brilliant. I mean, I say it to myself. And then my wife, who will listen in the house, will go, that was amazing. All those songs back to back. What station was it? It has mine. You know, and uh, takes me back to the days where I could program what I want. I know what fall, flow, not the radio station, but the word flow. Flow is the key to a great radio station where you can sit back and after you've listened to it, Marco, for say 20 minutes, and you haven't been able to turn it off. There's a reason you can't turn it off. It's flowing perfectly for you. Uh, I listened to AM740 a few Fridays ago with Brian Peroff doing the oldies. Sometimes he'll play things I don't like and I'll hit the button. But that night he was just playing one after another. I just laid there in bed, I couldn't turn it off. And that's a gift, you know, to get a really great flow going. A lot of young disc jockeys today, broadcasters, on-air talents, whatever you want to call them, even the real die-hard program directors who were behind the tight format will say to me, you know, John, it's getting hard to find somebody who can do that because we've told them, you know, it's time, it's temperature. Here's 15 seconds to say something funny and get out. You know, I remember when CKOC and Hamilton had a, had a jingle, you know, uh, much more music less uh, annoying jocks. And I called the program director. I call, I'm sitting here and I called him. How dare you? You're talking about my profession, you know? But uh, I'm rambling. There you go. No, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, I just, uh, I have very strong opinions. I didn't for a very, very long time. And I don't expect people to agree with me. Uh, and that's okay. I don't care. I think those are the three great, you know, it's like Homer Simpson said once. It's not that I don't understand. I just don't care. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, but if I'm uh, if I'm starving here in a few months, I'll be I'll be I'll play whatever you want, and I'll do it great too. But uh, so my final question is: You were inducted into the Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Yes, and you also awarded the Life Chie- Lifetime Achievement Award. The, the Alan the Alan uh, Waters Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, Mr. What does that mean to you? meant everything to me. I haven't talked about it publicly too much, but uh, I was sitting here in the living room in October of 2012. The phone rang, and it was Neil Dixon, 
who heads up Canada Music Week. He said, well, Johnny's sitting down. I said, okay. Well, buddy, you're going into the Hall of Fame. Well, he says, Jimmy Waters personally would really love you to be there. And so would I, because I knew Neil when he ran Grumble's Coffee House down on Jarvis Street. I said, wow. You know, so then we had a few phone calls after that and uh, had to come up with a bio, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sitting in Carmel, California, looking at the, the water and loving it there. And uh, all of a sudden, my phone literally goes off because what they had done, they had now announced it to the public. I sat there. I just, I had tears going down my cheek. I just, uh, I, you know, I always had a lot of trouble trying to recognize that was I good? If I am good, how good? I really grew up a very insecure kid for a lot of reasons. But when that happened, the recognition from my peers, to this day, and it's been two years, I, I just, it thrills me. I mean, if my mother and father were alive, especially my dad, so what are you going to do the rest of the day after the four hours on the radio? <laughs> you know, I, I'd love to say to him, look, Dad, look what I did. You know, I, I mean, I did a network television show across Canada on CBC, Afternoon Delight. I had a lot more hair and I was a lot thinner. But, uh, you know, this night down at the government was just the greatest thrill of my entire life. And I remember looking at my wife. She didn't like it because my kids were there. I said, I can die now. I can die now. She said, John, don't say that. You know. But my daughter flew in from Vancouver. My son was there. The guy who sold me my first 45 was there, right? I mean, and some very important people in the city. David Mervish did a wonderful thing for my video. Um, and some other, you know, Dan Hill told a great story. A lot of outstanding, but it's interesting on mine versus uh, some of the other... You, do, you get a video done every year, whoever wins it. Right. And you'll see a lot of business types going on. Mine, they were all musicians or a couple of disc jockeys in there. Uh, Colin Wilkinson played guitar and sang to me on the video. And that's, that's really what made it for me was all these musicians who you know, paid tribute to me. It meant more to me than probably anything. Well, it's been a total honor. I, I feel very lucky to have gotten to know you and, and spending this time as... Well, you too, Marco. Listen to that voice of yours. My God. Competition. There you go. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very, very much, Marco.